Yeah, I'm doing a mobile episode in the house here, and I'm going to be changing my clothes. But the show isn't going in the wrong direction. This show is not going to become an audio striptease. I, I mean, I'd like to do that. I'd like it to go in that direction, but it won't. But yeah, I saw a little exchange between people. You know, I'm just I'm observing these spiritual exchanges between people today, and someone was saying like. You know, I don't, I don't understand why people delude themselves with all these esoteric practices and beliefs when they could just chop wood and start a family and be nice to their neighbors and friends. And that is the beauty of it. I mean, that's what you realize. That's what you end up realizing one way or another. Some people realize that right off the bat and they don't need to go some circuitous, circuitous I was going to, I thought I knew how to pronounce that word. They don't take some roundabout way to get there. Some people are just kind of born recognizing that that matters. Other people do those things and don't feel happy, though. And it's not even about happiness. It's just about basically feeling like you're participating in life. And that it's doing you right and you are doing it right. But it's like some people do all those things, which is and people have midlife crises doing that. Many people who have a midlife crisis, crisis, maybe they have multiple crises, but many of those people, they've been doing those things. So, you know, there's, it's not like there's any one simple trick to becoming enlightened. And, you know, I understand the point this person was making, though, that it's like, you know, you don't need to go, you don't need to get into the occult. You don't need to get into deep esoteric philosophy to understand the basic principles of what it is to be alive, but yet you do. Because sometimes you don't recognize the value of those things. You don't even find the value in those things until you have gone that, until you have done the full orbit. And that's a good example of like one of the little traps that somebody falls into. Like when someone has that realization, when someone has that epiphany and says, I don't understand why people don't realize that all you have to do is be a nice person who earns a living and raises a family and learns how to chop wood. I don't understand why people think that there's more than that. Like chances are that person arrived to that thought by going around the full circuit. So there's sort of an irony to even saying something like that. But then the other added aspect of it is if you're saying something like that, you probably still have some more work to do. Because <laughs> it's like if, if you feel the need to shame other people's approach, and that's an easy trap to fall into. I still fall into it constantly. I've had friends who fall into it. And it's, it's funny, though, because it's hard to recognize when it's you doing it. But I had a friend who was talking – he was – upset about something that some group was doing like basically like he was upset about the way that they were approaching spirituality and you know it's just it's that's, those are the kinds of things that can easily preoccupy you and i mean i i certainly criticize certain aspects of you know the quote-unquote like spiritual culture and industry that we've created and I fall into that same trap myself, but it's like, sometimes you'll see somebody and they're like, they're basically shaming somebody else for their approach. 
And especially if that approach is relatively harmless, it's kind of funny to see that because it's like, oh, you're not exactly where you think you are if you're feeling the need to say that these people have it wrong. And, you know, Alan Watts broke that down perfectly when he talked about just the measuring stick, the competition, and how it's an endless competition, and it truly is. It truly is a bottomless well where it's like, oh, I figured it out. And because I figured it out, that means these other people didn't figure it out. Or, or the method they're using to try and figure it out is wrong. But sometimes you have to go that way to come back out on the other side and realize that simple truth. I mean, it could be something like, like some people experience that through psychedelics where having a bad trip is what makes them appreciate sobriety. Like I've had that experience. I've taken psychedelics when I was younger and had a, even if, if it wasn't a quote unquote bad trip, I've had an ordeal where I've been stressed. I've been worried. I've been all kinds of indescribable things happening to me. And then with that first moment when you realize you've come down a little bit, reality feels a little more real. It's bliss. And what's funny about that, though, is sometimes you'll come down. And I mean, it's not like I've done a ton of psychedelics, probably more than the average person, but not a ton. I'm not a, I'm not a psychedelics guy. But what's funny about it is like sometimes you'll come down and then like once you're full, you fully come down or you've come down significantly, then you start thinking, well, I kind of want to go back there. <laughs> you think like, I, you know, I kind of wish that it, this thing was back in full swing. Like you, you initially feel this relief. And I feel like that that sort of plays out with spirituality where like sometimes it's like you, you've established normalcy. I mean, this has happened to me in my own way. Like I've never, I've never gotten married and had a kid and built a house with my own bare hands or anything like that. But like there are times in my life where I've talked about this before with interests and hobbies and things where a few, a couple years, two or three years ago, I had hit kind of a point where I was like, I don't like anything anymore. And I feel liberated. I don't like any of the things I used to like. I don't care about my interests. All I have to do is this. All I'm going to do is just live this very simple life like a monk. Where I just get exercise, I meditate, I do what I have to do to survive. But I'm just, I'm going to exist in this state now. And you do that for a while, and then you start finding yourself gravitating toward your interests. You find yourself gravitating back toward the things that you were into or that you were involved with before. And so there's this sort of back and forth and cycle to all that where it's like the person who does finally, you know, achieve some sort of ideal state where it's just like, oh yeah, it turns out all I have to do is focus on the simple things and that itself is enlightenment. But guess what? You spend enough time doing that and you might very well find yourself gravitating toward the esoteric again. You know, and so hopefully you can do that if, if that's the direction you, you need to go in. But I think anytime you feel like I found it, I've discovered it. Because you see that politically. I mean, that's where a lot of people exist politically, where it's like, oh, yeah, I discovered the perfect system. 
I discovered the perfect way that our society should function. I know exactly what's wrong with it, and I know exactly what we need to do to make it right. The problem is other people don't agree, but they're wrong. You know, it's you get into that place with it. But it's important to remember, like, sometimes you do have to take that roundabout way, and that's not wasted time. That's not wasted time if it led you to a place that you find desirable. And that's where a lot of people come from. You know, there's a lot of people who have become more conservative in the last few years. I would say for me, it was like 2003, 2004 was around the time, around the time that I graduated high school. I started to realize, oh yeah, I have a lot of conservative tendencies and I don't necessarily agree with everything that's being presented under the banner of progressivism. It's about 2003, 2004 for me. But other people have had that same experience in the last few years. Hey, Batty, come on. Come on. Come on. Hey, come on. Um, but some people have that in the last few years. And a lot of those people, they, they took a roundabout way to get there. Like there, there's a girl that I, I follow online who I think she's like married. Hey, Batty, come on. Come on. Uh, who you know she she's like married with a kid now, and you know she's she's kind of made a brand out of it. And but you know she's somebody who used to be living the urban liberal lifestyle, and then that's what led her to where she is now. Like she found that oh yeah, being in polyamorous relationships and trying to keep up with the Joneses. In this world of, you know, hip music, you know, the rapidly changing politics, you know, all that stuff. Everything that goes along with what it is to be a young liberal in the new millennium. Like she had to go through all that to get to a point where she could she could say, like, oh, I just I want to have a kid and a husband and a house out in the out in the the woods, which is great, but you can see where she's still, it's, that's not everything. You can see where it's like, she, she does a show. She writes, she's kind of a composite of multiple people I'm talking about who I don't know, but it's interesting to watch them. But those, those women, they might not have appreciated that. They might not have gotten anything out. If they had just like gotten out of high school, gone to college and immediately gotten married and had a kid and, and just lived this rustic lifestyle, they might not have really enjoyed that. It might have just felt like they had to do it. They might be thinking, oh, you know, what, you know, why didn't I, uh, why didn't I move to the city and, and like live in an apartment with one, one of my friends and meet boys at, at shows and uh, go to art galleries? And, uh, you know, it's like she might be thinking that, but because she did all that, she took a roundabout way to get to this place that, in theory, she could have gone to all along. But, like, she probably appreciates it more, uh, you know. And it's important to remember, though, that, that that route, that road, is important in all this. And there's no reason to say... I mean, it's, it's like what I said before about, like, growing up fat. Or even, even after I lost my weight, even after I lost a bunch of weight in early adulthood... Like, look, sometimes I'll look back and be like, when I was 20 and I was getting in shape for the first time, why didn't I also lift weights? 
Why didn't I start running? I would have been in, in freakish shape. If I was 20 and doing what I did now, I would, be, I would have been in absolute freakish shape at the age of 20. Why didn't I do it then? Well, I had to take a much lo- longer route. I had to wait until I was 30 to decide, oh yeah, you know what? I'm going to start running and lifting weights and eating significantly better. You know, I, I had to go that route. So it's, it's like where you're at now is proof that the route you took was, if not the right one, the necessary one. And is there a difference between those things? So when I see people, and, and you know, this is, a, it's a spiritual trap to think, oh, well, I don't understand why those people have to do that to figure this out, because it's so simple. If epiphanies were that simple, people would be having them all the time, and they are. But still, they would be having the ones they want to have. You can't always choose the epiphany that you're going to have or when you're going to have it. And so it might take you doing something, even investing time and money and a lot of your identity into something only to realize 10, 15 years later that that wasn't what you wanted. But in in going in that direction and staying open-minded, staying aware that led you to where you are now and where you are now is the proof that you took the right path you know it's that kind of thing and it's hard not to be critical of those things and i mean i'm sure somebody could listen to this show and and hear me doing it all the time i'm sure that i do it all the time But I try to stay aware of it because I know how easy it is to do. Like, why didn't they just do this? Why didn't they just paint their house uh, light blue in the first place? They painted their house like pink with neon green highlights. And now their house is just blue with white trim. Why didn't you just do that in the first place? It's like, well, maybe they had to paint their house pink with neon green trim to realize the importance of having a subtle home that blends in with its surroundings. Sometimes you need to express yourself to realize that you don't need to express yourself. I don't know. I'm glad to be returning more to this focus though. Because I can't really shake the feeling that everything feels like it's teetering on the edge of collapse. And I've probably been saying that over and over again. (laughs) I've probably been saying that over and over again for the last seven, eight years. However long this show's been around. Eight years? I've probably been saying that all along. Everything feels like it's teetering on the edge of collapse. I don't know, guys. I'm I'm thinking in the next four months, everything's going to collapse. You know, I've probably been saying things like that all along. But I do get that feeling right now. Things feel particularly vulnerable. Like the infrastructure feels like, like, I feel like a toll has been taken on the infrastructure and there are fewer and fewer people who can maintain, repair, or rebuild that infrastructure. And I don't, I don't mean the literal physical infrastructure of our country, although that too, it just seems like everything, everything kind of has that feeling to it. I don't know. I was watching, here's some current events talk. I was watching these videos of what's going on in Australia If you're not familiar, you know, people are protesting the, 
I think they're draconian. You know, people use the word, people throw the word draconian around. It's like, that's a word you don't want to throw around. Like, can you, can you just, can you guys at least save the word draconian? <laughs> you know, can you save it for, yeah, it's just a problem with hyperbole. It's like you use hyperbole enough and you completely change the, the standards. But uh, what's going on in Australia, I consider it fairly draconian. In particular, the, the involvement of the police. And I was watching these news clips from Australian news. And you have these TV anchors and they're, they're talking about all the people who have violated restrictions. Like they arrested a bunch of teenagers for hanging out at a beach at night because they violated COVID restrictions. And the, the really strange was, one was there was a guy who was diagnosed with coronavirus and he was supposed to stay in his apartment, but he'd been leaving his apartment. And they showed this video footage of him getting into the elevator of his apartment, leaving, and he, he's gone missing. And he was wrapped in a blanket, I believe. I'm trying to remember, I watched it last night, but he was wrapped in a blanket and I believe he was in his pajamas. And it's like, clearly there's something wrong with him. Like he's not like, cause when I first saw it, I was like, oh, he's escaping from the hospital. Cause they were like, oh, he was diagnosed with COVID and now he's on the loose. He hasn't been staying, staying inside. And it was really weird that they felt the need to show him. Like, it's like a manhunt. It's like beyond, and they named him. I mean, basically ruined his life. That could ruin someone's life in this climate saying, you know, this guy left his house on COVID. Here's a video of him doing it. Here's his name. Here's his face. And I understand that, like, that's coming from a place of, well, he's he's ruining other people's lives by spreading coronavirus. But what I found really strange about it is, like, there was no mention of the fact that he left his apartment. Because I thought he was escaping a hospital at first. But it turns out he was leaving his apartment where he was supposed to stay. And in the video, though, he was like wrapped in a blanket and wearing his pajamas like he did not look mentally well. And he might not be. I mean, you think about some of the homeless people you see and it's like they're not following restrictions. Like someone who's mentally ill. You know, what do, what do these restrictions mean to them? And, and so it's like seeing this guy leave not even dressed with a blanket wrapped around him. I was just like. You're expressing no concern over his mental state. You're just concerned that he's basically a, a plague roaming around Australia. And just that idea of showing his face and his name, you know, because that goes beyond just shaming somebody. It's like that's, that's, you know, putting him into the database, into Google. And the media is shameless about that. I mean, I do not like journalism as a whole. I almost went into journalism. I like writing. I obviously like talking. You know, I almost went into journalism. I, I took newspaper. I was on the school newspaper for two years. I was one of the editors in high school. But I realized there was no, first of all, like it, it was well known already that there was no future in it. You know, it was all, we could already see the decline. But also, I just couldn't be one of those sorts of people. Like for my high school newspaper, I just ended up writing editorials. I was close to the teacher and she let me get away with that where I didn't have to actually do any reporting. I just wrote these rants. Not unlike what I do here, you know, I just ranted and people would tell me they liked it. One time this janitor, this very strange hunchbacked redheaded janitor, hard to place his age. He could have been anywhere between like age 48 
and 82. He was like one of the, it was strange, but I wrote this rant for the newspaper about how they had told us that if we passed this state mandated test, like everybody had to, had to pass this state mandated test. And they told us that if we pass it, but it wasn't, it was a test or rather, rather it was like a, uh, it was like a prototype where like future in future years, they were going to require that seniors pass this test in order to graduate. But our class, it wasn't a requirement to graduate. So there was no actual incentive. It didn't affect our grade. It didn't affect college. So it was basically just this experiment. Like, let's see what these guys do on this test. But because they wanted to give us some incentive, they told us that if we pass the test, it was called the WASL, the W-A-S-L. They're like, if you pass the WASL, you're going to get a pass that allows you to leave for lunch every day if you're a senior. Because we had one of those schools, they don't let you leave. They did not. We would sneak out. My friends and I would sneak out at lunchtime. But they wouldn't let you leave officially. And they told us, if you pass the WASL, you'll get this card that allows you to leave. Well, many of us passed the wassail and we never got that privilege. And so I wrote a rant about it. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was intense, but it was comedic. But that janitor wrote me a letter. He read what I, cause people said to me, like, like kids in the hallway would be like, oh, I, cause it would have my picture next to it and stuff. And like kids would say like, oh, I liked your article. But this janitor read my article and he was weird as many janitors are, but he was a weird guy. And he wrote me this letter and he was like, it sounds like you're, you're taking this way too hard. Like you sound like a very angry young man. You know, and then like the, it was funny about it too, is like the article ended with me saying, can you at least let us leave campus to go get Slurpees when we want them? Like it was something like that. I made some sort of joke about how like, you're telling me that I can't go get a Slurpee. So it's like, it was obviously you know, it was obviously tongue in cheek. Like, I mean, I meant it. I meant like, you told us that we would get this pass. I'm still upset about it today. No, you told us you would give us this pass and you did. And then you didn't. I was just telling them how it is. And I didn't expect it to change anything, but I just, I, and I made a joke about how it's like, all we want to do is go get Slurpees, man. Maybe, maybe smoke a little weed, but no, we, we just want to get some Slurpees. And this janitor thought that I was like a school shooter or something. He thought that I was just pathological about this whole thing. But anyway, you know, I gave up. I, didn't, I never had a dream of being a journalist. I just thought like, oh, that's something I could potentially do. And I enjoy expressing myself in certain ways that that medium allows. And I didn't end up doing it, though, because we could all see it going downhill. You know, being that age at that time... When these, you know, the war in Afghanistan had been going on for a couple of years, the Iraq war was relatively new. And that was when a lot of people like me started to recognize how fucking deceptive and outright dishonest most media publications are. Like the way they handled those wars was a huge moment for a lot of people around my age at that time. And I'm not going to say that directly factored into me not be, not wanting to be a journalist, but it did kind of, it definitely helped pave the path for my current cynicism and skepticism when it comes to the media and journalism. And another story that I, I've just never forgotten, you know, about, it was probably close to 15 years ago now, 
But all these articles came out where like it had come out that the former, he was dead by that time. But John Gotti, it turns out, had a, a love child with a woman. And uh, I guess people in the mafia knew about it. Like it, it was kind of a rumor that was known within the mafia. Like he'd actually, he had slept with the wife of another mafia guy, which is a no-no, but he's John Gotti, so he got away with it. And then he had a love child with her. And I think she's around my age, the daughter. And, but this was just like something like people obviously on the street knew it, but somehow the media got a hold of it. And this is probably, I would guess it was around 2007, maybe. They suddenly, they released all these articles naming the girl. I still remember her name because they, they took photos. They waited outside of her house and she didn't know like this girl, she didn't know that John Gotti was her biological father. Like she thought her dad, who she lived with was her dad. And all of a sudden her name and her mom's name and her dad's name. And you know, it's all across the new, it's in newspapers. It's on the internet. You can still look it up. You can look up her name today and these articles come up. And she was like an 18 year old girl or something, you know, she was barely an adult and they waited outside of her house with television cameras. Journalists were asking questions. Like I still remember they were like some journalists came to the door and a young man answered and he was just like, leave, you know, leave. Like, what are you doing here? And then she and her mom left and like got in a car and they had to like cover their faces. And then like they were getting photos snapped of them. And then the newspapers published those photos. These are the people that claim the moral high ground. These people, these parasites, this girl did nothing wrong. Like she, she's not in the mafia. She was a teenage girl who happened to be the product of an affair that she didn't know about. So the media revealed who her biological father is, something she didn't know. They waited outside of her house trying to get a quote. What does it even matter? John Gotti was dead. He had died a few years earlier. And even so, like what biz, how is that news? And this wasn't even TMZ. These were, these were newspapers. How can they get away with that? I mean, if anybody deserves to be caned, it's them. And oh, they're just do, their bosses want the story. Oh, it's a big story. It mentions a famous mafia boss. How can you do that? I sometimes think back about that because I've never heard it mentioned ever again. Like people I know who, who are interested in the mafia know about it, but I've never heard that mentioned in public because they do it all the time. They always, they, they, they've, they've developed an entire culture around it. That that's what you do. You expose people who did nothing wrong. You ruin their lives in some cases. And so, I don't know, just, I, it reminded me of that. When I saw them show this guy clearly in a, I mean, he, he has coronavi, whatever that's doing to him. He might have an existing mental issue or he might have just lost his mind like half the world, you know, has in the last year and a half. And he left his apartment. But it's like there's no concern. The concern is that he himself is a, the living embodiment of coronavi and he might infect other people. There's no concern for what his mental state is. The fact that this guy left his apartment wrapped in a blanket. And they're making him out to be a villain and they're putting his name out there. Why is that anybody's business? Be on the lookout. If you see this guy, he's carrying a bug. I understand we have a weird dilemma on our hands with that. I completely recognize that we have a weird dilemma 
with, you know, the idea that someone who knows they have coronavirus out there. But then it's weird because like, there are tons of people out there who know they have an STD and they willingly spread it. Like, why aren't those people's faces published? Not that I want them to be, but I'm just saying in, 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 as a matter of fairness. And then that's gone hand in hand. Like, liberalism makes no sense these days anyway. The left makes no sense, as everybody knows. But it's like, these are the same people who have been arguing that STDs are no big deal. AIDS? Oh, AIDS is just another word today, guys. What do you... Oh, you're telling me you don't want to handle the bloody band-aid of an AIDS patient? Dude, you're a bigot. Meanwhile, a guy leaves his house, you know, clearly in some sort of disturbed mental state. But he happens to have coronavirus, and it's like, put his name and face everywhere. He's a criminal. But what got me about these... Uh, these Australian news shows that I was watching, and it was multiple. I watched multiple ones. It wasn't just one of them. But this woman, this news anchor, what was really creepy about it is she kept referring to these people who violated the rules. And it showed the teenagers. It showed the teenagers being arrested. I don't know that it named them, but it showed them. You could, see, you could tell who they were. You could see their faces, and they were handcuffed on the beach. So they're showing these teenagers who just wanted to hang out. And they're showing them on the beach handcuffed. You can see their faces. And it's like they're showing the world. Oh, look at these. Let's put the dunce cap on them. Let's, you might as well put them in the pillory. I mean, that's what that is. It's a, the media is the modern day pillory. You put people in it and you say, look, everybody. He did something wrong. Something highly subjective that is prone to revision at any time. But the, what this woman kept saying, what this news anchor kept saying, she said it about the guy who left his apartment. She said it about the teenagers. She said, they were doing the wrong thing. At no point did she say they broke a law. At no point did she say they violated some, some legal rule. She kept saying... They were doing the wrong thing. It's probably more British than Australian. I haven't, I have no desire to learn an Australian accent, to be honest. Um, but doing the wrong thing. That's what she kept saying. And it's, it's funny that something so casual can sound so sinister. He was doing the wrong thing. You're doing the wrong thing, you fucking. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting riled up here. Like, you're doing the wrong thing right now by putting these people in a pillory like this. You are doing the wrong thing. And that's the sort of language that has surrounded all of this stuff. Like, with all the, uh, the BLM stuff, all of the social justice stuff, there's been this continual people, you know, they say, do better. Whenever they attack somebody, they close it out with, do better. Do better. You were doing the wrong thing, so do better. I'll tell you what doing better is. I'll tell you what doing the right thing is. And that's not showing people on TV, showing their faces, naming their names, going back to John Gotti's illegitimate daughter. 
waiting outside of her house to take photos of her so that you can publish her name and her face and shame her family. That's doing the wrong thing. And the fact that that's, that goes unpunished, the fact that that goes completely unpunished, it's kind of like the, um, well, I mean, and just to, something came up recently where in a big new, in a big New York newspaper, they published that this former mafia boss, Carmine Persico, he just died recently. He served life in prison. But it came out, they published that he was a rat. He was a secret FBI informant. And I'm always interested in that. Like, I love it when we find out somebody was an FBI informant who wasn't, because that means more info. And if he was a boss, that means high-level info. As a researcher, I value, I, I love it when a mafia guy turns out to be a rat, because that means there's a good chance we'll get a hold of some information that he provided and learn more about the subject. So that's where I come from. So I, I wish that this guy was a rat, but it came out that like they published this because a defense lawyer for, for another guy, they were trying to use it as an excuse to get his guy out of prison by saying, oh, look, this guy that he went to war with because there had been this mafia war in that, in that crime family. And they're like, oh, yeah, he's, he's sentenced to life in prison for a murder. But the guy who he was at war with was an FBI informant. Therefore, they, basically, they were trying to get an appeal. They were trying to say like, oh, because the guy that he was in this mafia war with was an FBI informant, that can help us get an appeal because we can say that the FBI was helping him. They've tried to use that argument before. So this is all based on the word of this defense attorney who is completely biased. He's an attorney. He's trying to navigate the legal landscape to get his client a good deal. But the actual FBI document, and they said, we got the paperwork. They're like, we got a hold of some paperwork from 1971 that shows that this guy was an informant. Well, they released the paperwork, and he's not an informant. The document they were referring to, they completely misread it. Like, there's a column that says which, which informant provided the given information about a certain person. And the informant that it listed, it has a code number. And that code number corresponds to this other guy, Greg Scarpa, who's a well-known informant and serial killer, basically. He killed tons of people as a mafia member, like way more than anybody ever should, even within the context of the mafia. And so the information actually came from Greg Scarpa. And all you had to do is do a little research. All you had to do is look up like who this informant was. You look up his informant code and his informant code is well known because this guy is one of the most famous informants in history, Greg Scarpa. And the confusion was over the fact that it looked like it was saying the, it, it looked, it had a list of guys in the mafia and then it had this informant code next to him. And if you didn't know what you were reading and I've, I've gone through Probably, I mean, thousands of documents like this. Like, if you want to know my deep, dark, pseudo-autistic side, it's going through old FBI files with a fine-tooth comb. And so I've seen thousands of documents like this. And so, because, and, and so like, my friend Ed, I have a friend Ed who, his specialty, he's a, he's a mafia historian, and his specialty is actually analyzing information from informants and finding out who the informant is using context clues, using comparing their code to other codes. Like he's, he's got a, a incredible system and he's always right. 
But he looked at it too, and he was like, yeah, they, they completely misread it. Carmine Persico was not an informant. But yet, if you were to look at the newspapers last week, there are all these newspapers that say Carmine Persico was a rat. And I, don't, I couldn't care less about his reputation. Because like I said, I wish that he was a rat. Because if he was a rat, it would mean more information for, for people like me, outsiders like me. But it just it pisses me off because it's like the, the guy who wrote this article that revealed this did no research. He had no idea what he was talking about. I've seen him on. He's an old guy. And I've seen him in interviews in the last week being like, yeah, we found out he was an informant. And he, he's very smug about it. And it's like you didn't even know how to read the document. You didn't even know what you were doing. And you published this without verifying it. And I, we'll see if they release a retraction. But that's the thing about that. That's the, that's the beauty of our media system of making statements and then retracting them is the retractions, as long as they're not too severe, retractions are typically saved for the back pages. They're a footnote. And what I've learned is that most people never come across the retractions. We see that with a lot of the, the hate crime hoaxes where you know, something, oh, uh, somebody drew a, a backward swastika at a college campus. And it turns out to be a non-white student. Well, the, the initial article everybody reads about. Everybody's outraged. Oh, my God. Somebody drew a backward swastika at Oberlin College. Oh, my God. Oh, I thought Oberlin College was safe. Somebody drew a backward swastika. A swastika. And then it comes out that, yeah, they found out who did it, and it was, you know, like a non-white communist student. You know, it's like, it's usually something like that. But nobody reads about the correction, because the correction is pushed to the back. The buzz is already there. And this is something that I, I've had to accept about the last year and a half, where it's like, the people I know who were the most hysterical during summer 2020 who were the most unbearable and hysterical. And maybe somebody felt that way about me listening to, maybe they feel that way about me right now talking about this. But the people who are the most unbearable and hysterical have calmed down significantly. And these are people I know personally. They've calmed down significantly. But I'm reminded that they haven't walked back anything. They ha At no point have they said, oh, you know, I think I was kind of wrong about that thing that I overreacted to that might, may or may not have even happened. Like nobody has walked back anything and it's still waiting there to be activated again. I've had a few interactions that have reminded me of that where, oh, yeah, just because you're calm now. And I'm not calm right now. I'm yelling. But no, just because you're calm right now doesn't mean that you've gained any kind of wisdom. It doesn't mean you've gained greater awareness and walked anything back. And not that I expect people to walk anything back like, oh, you know, I was totally wrong, but just to dial it back. Like we're just one event away from that coming up again. And we saw yesterday where, you know, there was a shooting in Portland where Antifa... And the Proud Boys were going at it. And as far as I'm concerned, let them. If any two groups deserve each other, it's them. And I still want to make that porn. 
it'd be a very romantic porn, but it's, it's about a, a proud boy or a, a patriot prayer guy in a love story with a, an Antifa girl. It'd be very romantic, but also very sexual, because that's what people want. People want explicit, hardcore pornography with their romance these days. And we're going to give it to them, guys. And, you know, it might work. The opposite might work, where maybe an Antifa guy falls in love with a Patriot Prayer woman. Nobody would want to watch that, though. Nobody would want to watch an Antifa male do anything. Even even people who are part of that. Even people who are part of the whole Antifa thing don't want anything to do with Antifa men. Definitely the lowest of the low. I still see people say too, didn't you don't you know it just means anti-fascist? It's funny, like people are at this point where they think that incel is a formal organization. Meanwhile, they think Antifa just means anti-fascist and anybody can casually use it, which some of them do. But to think that they aren't organized groups is insane. And what's weird, too, is like a lot of people have just become introduced to all this. Like being a fan of metal, Antifa has been trying to, to stop black metal shows for the last 20 years, 15 years. None of this is new to me. You know, none of this. I didn't just learn about this two years ago. I've been closely following this for my most of my adult life. Antifa has been trying to shut down and censor music for a long time. They've been doing stuff and they are, you know, I'm not going to say they're the tightest knit organization, but they're certainly a group. But incel, in, incels, on the other hand, they're a, a highly organized group of trained killers just waiting to go out and kill tons of women. All these people deserve each other. Incels, Antifa, Proud Boys. I just, just put them all in the ring together as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, yeah, I don't know, kind of a rant. Some anger coming out of me. It feels good, though. It feels good to get angry sometimes. Because I don't do it too often. It ends up feeling cathartic, but I can also see the draw of doing it all the time. But I, I do feel like I got it out of my system. It all, honestly, it all came out because it's two things. It's like the, the, the way that these Australian media personalities were, were talking about people doing the quote unquote wrong thing. Because that's the real sickness of this all is that like you end up targeting people for doing very specific things. But then when you discuss it, you just say they were doing the wrong thing. You might as well say they were sinning. And then the other thing is, I don't know if this is true, but I keep hearing these things about how because of the COVID coronavirus lock, locker down in Australia, they've had to kill all these rescue dogs. Maybe that's just propaganda, but no, it was in news articles that I saw. It's like, oh, you think you're doing the right thing, huh? You guys are doing the right thing, killing rescue dogs. While you're arresting teenagers and broadcasting a man's name to the world because he left his house with coronavirus. I don't know. I just, there's no way. I, I am incompatible with that world. I am incompatible with it.
And I, I believe that people have gotten very, very sick. Very, very sick. And I mean, I think if you can just prevent yourself from getting as sick as them, I mean, you're doing, a, doing you are doing better. And you got to get mad sometimes, you do. Because going back to the beginning of this episode, you know, that person saying, well, I'm not mad at them. I'm not mad at this person. I understand them. But the person who said, like, I don't understand why all these people get into the occult and, like, esoteric philosophy when you can just uh, get a job and get a wife and have kids and chop wood. They, they didn't even say chop wood, but that's that same sort of person. Um, this is a composite. You know, I'm, I'm making them into a composite. But it's, it's kind of like the same thing with um, your emotions, where it's like, it's that, to me, that's the equivalent of saying, like, I don't understand why you had to, like, be in a bad mood when you could have been in a good mood. Well, sometimes it's being in bad moods and learning how to deal with it and focusing on it that allows you to gain greater access to neutral or positive moods. Like sometimes you have to get mad. Sometimes you have to dwell in the darkness or drag yourself through the mud in order to be nice, be better off, be happy. You know, so it's like you can't see all of these things as useless. And I've talked about this before, but still, like we have a tendency to look at certain emotions, certain dispositions and say, you shouldn't feel that way. It's useless and it's bad. And it's like, I, I used the example about a month ago of jealousy because people have a tendency to think of jealousy as all bad and jealousy can be absolutely awful. It can lead to horrible crimes, deserved and undeserved. You know, jealousy can lead people to kill their entire family because they think their wife's cheating on them because she was looking at a text she got late at night or you know what I mean like people jealousy can be completely unhinged and insane but that doesn't mean that the the initial spark of jealousy is inherently bad it's like we feel jealousy for a reason but if you're aware of it you learn to you you learn to understand whether your jealousy is telling you something that you need to know maybe your wife is cheating on you maybe you know, sometimes it's informing you. But sometimes people have no discipline, they have no awareness, and so their jealousy just consumes them. But that doesn't mean jealousy is inherently bad, and hatred's the big one. Because hatred has become a brand word. It's become the brand for political groups that certain people don't like. So they say, oh, that's hate. And one of the big reasons why I've always been opposed to the word hate speech is because they get to define what hatred is. And you can, we're human beings, and you can spin a lot of things as hatred. And so I don't like giving somebody that power. Not just the power to prevent you from saying certain things, good, bad, or otherwise, but the power to define what good and bad is. And that's one of the biggest problems I have with terms like hate speech, not, not even just the term, the laws that accompany it. 
So, uh, you know, but it, but it's like hatred as an emotion, as whatever you want to call it. I don't I don't even know if you would call it an emotion. I don't think of hatred as an emotion like anger, and that it comes out of you in the same way. I think of anger as more of just like a state, an internal state, and it's it's more of a slow burn, kind of even a cold anger. But hatred itself, I mean, has a function as well, like what people call hatred. I mean, you could call it anything you want. But what people refer to as hatred, it has practical value as long as it's not abused, as long as you're not consumed by it. Like the basic impulse is natural. But we've created this world where positive emotions are seen as highly functional. Oh, they have a clear purpose. Clearly, clearly being happy is good and has a purpose, which I agree with. But there's this idea that the negative emotions have no purpose. They're like some cancerous mutation we've just carried with us over the years. And I'm not one of these people who looks at every single thing that we do, every single thing that makes us who we are, and I don't say, hmm, you know, uh, it all has an evolutionary purpose. It all has an evolutionary purpose. You know, I'm not even someone who necessarily sees everything through that lens. But I, I think there's some truth to that. I think there is truth to the idea that these things that we all seem to feel, no matter what we call them, because that's the really funny thing about people who think that they're fighting hatred, but they're using hatred to fight hatred, but they'll never admit that they themselves are hating. And I've said it many times on this show, it's been a, a long-standing joke on every night's a school night, but it's also been, it's also a true joke. It's one of those true jokes, T-R-U jokes. And that's the, I have really good hate, Dar. And you hear about gay people having gay Dar. They can tell if someone's gay or not. I have hate Dar. I can tell if you're being hateful or not. I think I'm an expert in it. I can tell if what you're expressing comes from a place of hate. And I can tell you that no matter what you call it, it smells the same. It sounds the same. And a lot of people are using hate to fight hate. And then, of course, you have people who end up attaching themselves to the brand of hatred, too. Like, that's always kind of the irony of neo-Nazis who are like, we just believe in a, a better way of life for the white people, for the, for the, the Anglo-Saxon uh, Northern European people. And it's like, well, then why do you call your band hate core? Why are you doing the exact thing that they're accusing you of? If your, if your focus is just on creating a better life for you and your people, which is something that everybody's always done throughout history, but if that's your goal, creating a better life for what you see as your tribe, then why are you in a hate core band? Why are you identifying with the brand name of hatred? Why are you identifying with a political party that has no chance of mainstream resurgence today. And of course the left thinks the left thinks that 
if they don't do their work, the next thing you know, we're going to have mainstream politicians with swastika flags behind them. I'll believe it when I see it. And if there's not a, a swastika flag, they'll tell you there's dog whistles. I mean, I, an ex-girlfriend of mine posted something online during the election where she was like, I mean, you want to talk about conspiracy theories. And she's a good woman. You know, I, I like her. But she she said like, she, she had reposted something where it was like, if you notice, like, Trump's speech was 14 minutes long. And each segment had 88 words. It was something like that. It was something to where, like, through some crackpot connect the dots, they were able to say that, like, Trump was invoking 1488, the 14 words. If you're unfamiliar, it's like the 14 words are this saying about, like, we must secure a future for the existence of white children or something. And it's it's almost more parody than anything these days. I mean, like... I wonder if anybody actually even uses the 14 words sincerely anymore. But anyway, basically, like, she found something where some, some, like, conspiracy theorist on the left, and you'll never hear them referred to as a conspiracy theorist because that itself has become branded. Conspiracy theory is associated with right-wing thinking, even though everybody is filled with conspiracy theories. But uh, just the idea that, like, oh, if you if you... Look at Trump's speeches. He he used, he did 14, he posted 14 separate Twitter posts today and each one had 88 words. You know, it's like shit like that. Like I'm, I'm just pulling that out of, out of thin air. But somebody seriously did try to say that Trump was dog whistling the neo-Nazis by using like 1488. And it's like, I don't think so, guys. I don't think so. But you think about like neo-Nazis in general or anybody like that and it's like, they end up identifying with the very aspects that have the least potency. And people seem to think that if they don't push back on that, that will become mainstream. We will actually have a Nazi party as one of the major U.S. political platforms. And it's just like, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen. And then, but then the whole dog whistling, the whole like, oh, well, they're pretending to say this, but they really mean this, you know, that kind of thing. And then you can do anything with that. You can create any kind of story with that. But yeah, I mean, these people don't do themselves any favors when they wear a swastika armband. Like you're not actually trying to gain political legitimacy, okay? And when you start calling yourself hateful with pride, and that's the thing too, like you think about like tr the tribal aspect, because like, I don't even believe in white people. I don't even believe in whiteness. I understand that, you know, just the melting pot of America has, has given us the illusion and interbreeding has given us the illusion that whiteness just refers to everybody with a certain complexion and European ancestry. But it's like, I can tell you that like, I don't identify with Irish people. And that goes for Americans too. Like if I meet someone who's American with Irish and, and they're clearly of Irish descent, I don't judge them for that, but I don't identify with, I don't think, Oh, this is one of my people. I don't think that way.
I, and that's not even a choice. Like I just, at some point over the last like 15, 20 years, I just realized like, Oh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I'm part of the same tribe as just any European American white person. I don't feel that way. I do have a certain affinity for people from my background, Scandinavian. I mean, I, on my mom's side, I'm more of a mix. But it's like I, I do feel a certain gravitational pull to people who are like me. But that's not white people. That's people who come from the specific parts of Europe that my family comes from. And whether that's just in my head or whether something I actually truly feel in my blood is anybody's guess. I don't, I don't really make much of a difference between what I feel in my head and what comes from my blood because it, it all kind of feels connected. But it is just one of those things where you're like, huh. You know, I don't, I don't even, you know, I don't even feel any kinship with Irish people. I don't feel any kinship with Russians. You know, so I don't know where this idea comes from that in being a white person, I identify with whiteness. I'm not going to say it's a completely bankrupt concept. Obviously, there is sort of a, a pan-European union in America. But that's because there's more cultural commonality there anyway. Like someone from a Scandinavian background is going to have more in common with somebody from a British background. And that's going to make it easier for them to intermarry, interbreed, to synthesize a little bit. That's not some nefarious plot. I mean, you can see that with Italians, you know, something that I've studied quite a bit where when different types of Italians came to the U.S., they lived in their own colonies. Like there were Sicilian colonies, there were Neapolitan colonies, there were Calabrian colonies. You know, people lived in different colonies. It wasn't just, but then over time, like over just one or two generations, you started to see little Italy formed. But before that, there was little Palermo and little Sicily. Sicilians didn't see themselves as Italian, and, and many of them still don't. Like if you talk to certain Sicilians, which I have, they don't see themselves, I mean, they they do, I mean, they do see themselves as Italian-American and American and all that, but they do make a very solid distinction between their Sicilian heritage and the, and the mainland heritage of other Italians. And there's a long history and there's a reason for that. But over time, they intermarried, like you started to see Sicilians marry Neapolitans and Calabrians, and then they, they kind of homogenized into more of an Italian-American mass. But it took a while, and, and some of them have still retained some of their original ethnic identity. Like there are still Sicilian communities that include American-born Sicilians. And so, I mean, I kind of relate to that in my own way and like in the way that Northern Europeans intermarried. Like my great grandfather was from Sweden and he moved to America and married a woman from Norway. And they have kind of a right, like, like Sweden and Norway have a longstanding rivalry, just like Sicily and, and mainland Italy do. So in that way, like my great grandfather marrying a Norwegian woman, a Swede marrying a Norwegian woman, 
That's kind of like a Sicilian marrying a Calabrian. They neighbor each other, but they do, and they're very similar. To outsiders, they might even seem identical, but there are nuances, there are distinctions, and ask them. Ask a Swede about Norway. Ask a Norwegian about Sweden. They might not say, oh, I hate them. They might make a joke. And they'll probably tell you there is a difference. And so I kind of feel that way about just whiteness in general in our country where, like, you want to tell me that I belong to the same group as some guy with the last name O'Neill? Are we, are me and uh, Seamus O'Neill more similar than me and Ricardo Estevez? Yeah. Does that make us the same? Does that mean that I see us as the same? No. Does the fact that I don't see us as the same have any real bearing on my life? No. But I don't identify with every single European American. I don't identify with every single person who marks white. And maybe part of this is that I'm a little more preoccupied with history. I'm a little more preoccupied with, you know, genetics and for that matter. Not, not genetics, but just like I'm interested in knowing who people are. Like my friends, like I, you know, some of them it never comes up. But with a lot of them, I'll, I'll just ask them. I'll be like, where are you from? Where are your people from? And that you got to be careful who you say that to. But fortunately, if it is somebody who's part of this collective white group, it's usually not considered offensive. But I I used to hang out with a guy that I worked with. And I remember I asked him, I was like, what's your background? What's, What's your last name? And it turned out he was half Irish, half German. And my best friend growing up was half German, half Irish. And I was like, oh, I tend to get along with you, Kraut Mix. You know, it's a Godfather reference, but Kraut Mick. But I was like, oh, hey, that's, that's great. I tend to get along with you, Kraut Mix. And you can have fun like that, though. You can have fun like that. But it's like the more different you are from a person, the more treacherous that becomes. And the more difficult it is to be comfortable enough with somebody to do that. But I mean, I had, I had a close friend who was Japanese growing up. His parents were from Japan. There were a lot of Asian kids in general, but I had a close friend who was Japanese and, you know, it was just a regular part of our exchanges. And and this is one of those cliches. This is like one of those reactionary cliches where it's like, when I was growing up in New York, uh, we all just called each other every slur in the book. The black people called me white boy, and I called them, you know, people say that, and I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't necessarily love those kinds of environments where everybody's just insulting each other all the time, but I mean, I understand the argument, and I've had my own version of that where, you know, even just calling somebody a kraut mick, you know, it's it's not meant to be offensive, obviously. It's, it's meant in the spirit of camaraderie. But you're not going to say that to a total stranger. Like if I overheard a stranger telling a friend like, oh yeah, I'm part German and, and part Irish, I wouldn't go over to him and say, oh, you're a kraut mick, huh? You kraut mick. 
you know, part of it is just having a certain level of comfort with people. But, you know, speaking of like the Japanese friend, it was like, he would say things growing up, like, like we were, I mean, we were friends in junior high and he would say like, oh, you know, you're, that's so white. That's so white of you or something, you know, things like that to that effect. And I don't remember what I would say in return. I don't, I don't feel like we had some like racial humor, you know, where we were constantly bringing that up, but it would come up naturally and you'd laugh it off and move on. And I understand that that doesn't describe every situation. I'm not trying to say that it's a one size fits all. Obviously, it's not a one size fits all situation. Otherwise, people would have figured this out a million years ago. You know, this has been going, this isn't new. This has been going on forever. As long as different groups of people have come up against each other, rubbed up against each other, which they always seem to have one way or another. I mean, you want to talk about Germany and you just look at the different tribes of Germany that were at war with each other. You know, to us, they're all Germans, but at a certain point in history, there were different tribes in Germany who hated each other and they were in conflict. Is that far off from the two Germanys that, you know, existed uh, after World War II? Because, I mean, that's, that's a phenomenon I've noticed is just that if you have two completely separate groups, there's a decent chance they'll come into conflict and hate each other. And the negativity bias, though, makes it distracts us from the fact that there's also a lot of cooperation. You know, when we hear about a conflict, when we hear about a war, that obscures the fact that there might have been a longer trend of cooperation, but things just boiled over. But with, um, when, when things do, uh, when two different groups come into conflict, you know, it's obvious. It's like, oh, these are very different groups and they've come into conflict and they emphasize their differences. They make an effort to emphasize their differences when they're in conflict. Cause that's the interesting thing. When two tribes, for example, are collaborating, they collaborate on the basis of what they have in common. But when two groups fight, they fight on the basis of their differences. They, and they, and they do, they reinforce those as part of their argument. Oh, you look different. You sound different. You like different things. So those get reinforced by whatever the relationship is at a given time. If you're trading with somebody, you're going to reinforce your commonality. If you're fighting with somebody, you're going to reinforce your differences. And obviously the fight itself perpetuates that the fight itself feeds into that. But let's say that's over. Let's say a tribe wins, they wipe out the other tribe. So now one of those tribes simply exists. Well, you know what happens then is then that tribe splits in two. And even though all the people look the same and sound the same, now they have some kind of idea that separates them. It's the roots of ideological difference. Oh, you know, the, this one member of the council, this one leader of the tribe council thinks that uh, the climate is warming up here and it's getting harder and harder to grow vegetables. And it seems like the wild game is going further and further south. He thinks that we should uh, be nomads and, and go that way. He thinks we should pick up our stakes and move. 
But this other member of the council says, no, we need to stay here. We need to, you know, fortify our position here. And you know what? We just fought a battle with those other guys so that we could do this. And so within the tribe, you now have a a conflict based on that. I mean, that's what the secret of Nim is about. That's what uh, Miss Frisbee and the rats and Nim is about. Is about how the rats want to leave the thorn bush, and other rats don't, and they're they're having an internal warfare. They're they're having internal warfare over the decision of whether the rats should leave their hideout in the thorn bush and go elsewhere or not. Great cartoon, great book. Miss Frisbee and the Rats and Nim. The movie is called The Secret of Nim, but that's a great story. And yeah, the rats are having that very discussion that I'm describing. They've split into two. They've split into factions. I mean, you see this with the mafia. I bring up the mafia all the time because you see where the mafia is a microcosm of humanity. And it's actually very rare for, for a mafia family to be at war with another mafia family. It happens very rarely. What's much more common is internal warfare, where different factions take different sides and they end up killing each other within their own crime family. And so you can see where we create difference. If you leave a tribe to its own devices and they have no contact with other tribes... They don't just exist in a state of utopia. They start going after each other. They start splitting into factions. While their differences were minor when they were fighting this other tribe who was very different from them, when they're left to their own devices, their own internal differences become magnified. And that's the source of a lot of conflict. And you can, you can look at it on a cellular, cellular level. And I ain't talking phones. Where you can see where it's like this cell splits. This, you know, it's the cell splits in two. And they each form their own cells. So it's almost like we need this balance where it's like we need to occasionally have minor conflicts with outsiders. Because that kind of reinforces who we are and keeps us unified. I mean, there's a reason why people feel so unified during war, especially when it's a war we can actually believe in, like World War II. But there's a reason why countries become much more unified during war, because we're fighting somebody external to us. But when we're just left on our own, we don't create utopia. Oh, we won the big war. Our side won. I guess now we can just create utopia. No, you end up creating hell. Factionalism. Magnified differences. That's what we're doing now. And like, what's interesting is you see this within the political parties today. You see where, I mean, the, there's the phrase, the left eats itself. Which, yeah, I mean... The progression, the quote-unquote progression of leftism in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen where they've been fighting amongst themselves. 
And uh, some of the people they demonize the most are the people who are actually closer to them than their actual enemies. Like there's a reason why all these leftist publications, why all these biased journalists go after and in these like social media pig piles, there's a reason why they often go after centrists and people who are moderate because they're closer to them. They can get away with bashing them easier. And it's internal factionalism. But you can see where like during Trumpsfeld, a lot of moderate Democrats, people who I don't think otherwise would have ever gotten on board with the quote-unquote woke, woke, woke stuff, you can see where they got on board with it because they were like, well, the side that I like is up against this other side, and I hate Trumpsfeld, so I'm going to join these. I'm going to have to join these guys. I'm just going to have to swallow the bitter pill of stuff that I don't believe in and just side with these guys, whereas other people in that position chose the Republicans. And they really shocked themselves and they shocked people they know because it's like, I never thought I'd be a Republican. But the reason why they became a Republican is because their own side drove them there. Their own side has been splitting hairs and breaking into factionalism. And Republicans do it as well. You can see all the infighting that has been going on, like even just with Trumpsfeld. Like the amount of infighting that was going on based on whether somebody supported Trumpsfeld or... Or they were in, like, you know, the neocons hated Trumpsfeld, and the neocons did a lot to sabotage him. So you can see where there's factionalism even within the Republican Party. Of course there is. Of course there's factionalism in every political group. But it's like, you know, the ideal is that, it's like the ideal is that we like brush up against other groups often enough to where you know, it helps, it, it helps unify us. It helps unify our own people. But then you're not left to your own devices long enough to split into your own factions and destroy yourself from within. It's like, that's just the dilemma of any group, of every group. Hear that baby crying down the street. It's a crazy noise. Baddy doesn't know what to think. I wonder what he thinks of a screaming baby. Sometimes I'll hear a screaming baby. And it's just, it makes me feel like an alien. Because that's just, it's such a different world. Like the idea of raising a tiny child. It's, it's such a beautiful thing, but it does feel so foreign to me. What's that baby so upset about? I guarantee you that baby has no idea what I'm even talking about. Oops, I dropped things. Um, that baby's got no clue. Baby got baby got no clue. I don't know if I'll release this one. We'll see. I feel like it was a little too angry. A little too direct. That said, I support everything I said. This brave 
this golden land to me and when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains 